I've heard the term hacktivism, and I guess that's a hacker who is taking an active part in trying to uh, work on a um, an ideology. Well, funny you should ask that. So, cybercrime, and I'm not saying that hacktivists are criminals, but typically things done online in the gray area or the criminal area happen because of one of three reasons. Cash, status, ideology, right? Mm -hmm. So hacktivism falls strictly within the ideology bit. And what I say is, is that, you know, if you're a company or an individual and someone is looking to attack you, whether stealing money or they're doing it to increase their status and respect among their peers or it's because you've pissed them off. You've got some belief that they don't agree with. You've done something that they really dislike. That final thing there, that ideology slant, that is the most dangerous of all of them because that attacker will never, never give up. The person who's looking to steal cash, that person, if he can't get cash easy from you, he's going to go someplace else. That status level... If he's not able to really hit you, he's going to find another target. The ideology, though, they're looking at you specifically, you or your company, for a reason. And that becomes the issue. Now, I'm not saying, and that's what this episode is about, right, is hacktivism. I'm not saying that that hacktivism is a bad thing. It's not. The problem is, is that how is it conducted? That's the issue. Because... You know, you've seen the quote or you've read the quote, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Right. The other thing is, it's like holding a grudge and just not giving up. It is like holding a grudge. And, of course, we're talking today about the main group, Anonymous. Anonymous. And we're going to have Mike Jones. He's one of the original members of Anonymous. He's going to come in and talk to us today. But the thing is, is that... You know, if, if, you're, if you have a problem with someone, I am all about, because that's, that's what I do, what I did it as a criminal, I do it now as a good guy. I, I believe in, a lot of me believes in that idea of taking matters in my own hands. You know, it's if the government's just not doing it fast enough. I need to, I need to do something, you know, and I, I believe, I, I do believe that. I believe that people should be stepping up and being part of a solution, not part of a problem. But the issue is, is that there's a line there. You know, there's a proper way to protest, to get your message across, everything else other than breaking the law. And I'm not saying Anonymous does that, but there are members of Anonymous who have done that. Well, let's put this into uh, perspective of what we have done in the past to protest government. Sure. Timothy McVeigh. And Criminal. the Oklahoma City right. bombing. Boston Tea Party. Right. Exactly the same thing. Another terrorist act, exactly. Another terrorist act. So and the other thing is, what about the people who take shots at our president, no matter who the president is? Yeah, ideologically opposed to whoever the president is. Yes. And one of the things that you see Anonymous is associated with is Guy Fawkes. You know, the Guy Fawkes mask. Yep. Guy Fawkes was, he tried to blow up Parliament in 1605. He died in 1606 because the plot, the gunpowder plot failed. And exactly. most people know, know who Guy Fawkes is, at least in the United States now, because of the movie V for Vendetta, which was all about this 
you may as well. I mean, he was a terrorist. That's what he was. He was a terrorist. That's right. <laughs> so, and of course, Anonymous has those masks now. And again, I, I, my issue, I actually agree with a lot of stuff that Anonymous does. So do I. When it's legal. When it's legal. When it's legal. And there's a fine line there about who is a victim. Right. You know, is their target really becoming a victim? Right. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes it just depends on how you look at it. You know, I like the idea. And, of course, it's, and even some of the stuff that has happened, and, again, it's not... People have to understand that when we're talking about hacktivist groups, say Anonymous, for example, when we're talking about a hacktivist group, it's not the group that's doing these things wrong. The group is a, is a, is a set of members who come in and out of the group and may just call themselves anonymous. And maybe they're not even associated with anonymous, but when something happens protest-wise, it crosses that illegal boundary because the media says it's all anonymous, anonymous gets that blame as well. So I'm not saying that the that the higher-ups at Anonymous, the people who are in charge of this co-op type thing, are to blame. I don't think they are. I think that you've got some renegade members that may or may not be part of Anonymous that decide to do this stuff. And, you know, like Ferguson, for example. That's the big one. That's the big one. Let's go ahead and we'll go and we'll post some police officers' information and see what the fuck happens. That That's... One of the big things right there. And we start to see Anonymous start to splinter after that and all these other groups because they were kind of ideologically opposed to themselves right. at that point. But it's, it's, it's more than just that. We see with WikiLeaks. So PayPal decides to stop taking donations for WikiLeaks. All of a sudden, you've got all these people that launch DDoS attacks against PayPal, costing PayPal over $30 million dollars because those people were ideologically opposed to PayPal's decision to no longer accept money from WikiLeaks or to to WikiLeaks. Now was that anonymous? Probably not, but do they get the blame? Oh yeah. Of course. Absolutely you're going to get the blame. And that that's that's the issue that I have with this stuff is that first of all we don't know who's doing it, but there's one group that gets the blame for everything. The second thing is is that and that, that's the big issue for me, is I, I, I do believe in protest. I'm a firm believer in protest. Same here. You know, I, I think that uh, if you're against nuclear plants, and I'm not, but if you're against nuclear plants, get your ass out there and protest. If you hate Donald Trump, don't just sit your ass on the couch. Get your ass off the couch. Head down and protest someplace. You know, if, if you're right to life or freedom to choose... Whatever, get out there and do something about it. Because, again, it's that whole idea that I've got of if you're not part of the solution, by God, you are part of the problem. And if the only thing you're doing is sitting there bitching about it, you're not doing anything. So you're part of the problem all of a sudden, regardless of what your belief is. I don't care. Just do something. I keep having to say this because I don't want any of these members out there that are hacktivists to say, oh, we're going to get that Brett Johnson. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's not... The, the group, it's these members of the group that decide to screw around and everything. And I just think that there, there's that you're becoming part of the problem when you decide to act like that. You know, you're, 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 you're coloring an entire segment of how protest should be 
conducted by doing something illegal or something that incites violence or any number of things like that. Um, you know, Martin Luther King, God bless his soul, he was not about violence. He was not. And he was extremely effective. Gandhi was not about violence. He was not about breaking the law. I mean, he broke improper laws, but he was extremely effective. Now, Malcolm, Malcolm, I, and I, I love Malcolm, but, you know, he was by any means necessary. And he was extremely effective, too. <laughs> and he had his own methods. And he had his own methods. But he, he, had a, he had a, you know, toward the end of his life, he had a turnaround where he was more accepting of everyone. And I think that uh, had he lived, that we would have seen Malcolm maybe turn into a, a nonviolent protester or someone who didn't really incite violence. I don't think Malcolm was ever violent. Uh, it was just the by any means necessary line that people took as violence. And, and I, just, I think that uh, with hacktivism, we have to just be careful of those lines, know what those lines are, know that as, as, as much as we may believe in trying to change or forcing people to change, that at the end of the day, if you cross that line, you are not only no better, but you're worse than the thing you're protesting against. And that's, so we've got Mike Jones coming on the show today. Mike is one of the original members from Anonymous. Mike worked as a informant for law enforcement, for federal law enforcement in the United States. He's going to tell us some of that story. He's going to talk, we're going to talk about privacy for a bit. We're going to talk about Anonymous and hacktivism. We'll get his thoughts on that as well as one of the original members of Anonymous. Uh, Mike is currently in the UK. And Mike is almost, I guess you could call him, a man without a country. Oh, yeah. The old, um, let's hide your passport. It turns out that he, he was very good about making sure his passport was hidden at all times. So he leaves, comes back, his passport's missing. And for some odd reason, he's having trouble getting a passport back. Now, is that the federal government fucking with him? I am not a conspiracy hat-wearing guy. But... If I was going to fuck with somebody, that may be what one of the things I would do right there. Yep. So uh, we're going to talk to Mike about that. He is uh, Mike today works as a speaker. He is a uh, he's an outstanding person. He's a military veteran, uh, decorated. He is truly a a great human being who believes in educating people and helping people, and that's what he does today. And I don't think that Mike ever ever did anything improper when he was a member of Anonymous. Um, and I think that whole group that Mike was in was, was a good group. So we're going to meet Mike today, talk to him, and start the Anglerfish Podcast. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast, where we navigate the dark waters of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. Season one of Anglerfish tells the story of my rise and fall as the original internet godfather and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to now being focused on protecting people from the type of person I used to be. This second season of the Anglerfish podcast dives into the deepest, darkest waters of our online lives. We'll be discussing fraud and financial cybercrime, sure, 
but also human trafficking, drugs, cyberbullying, fake news, extremist groups, nation-state attacks, child pornography, and more. Anglerfish believes shedding light on the darkest parts of the Internet helps us to better understand the problems and find solutions instead of living in a world of fear. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast. And today on the Anglerfish Podcast, we have Mike Jones. Mike Jones, who was one of the original members of Anonymous. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure, Brett. Appreciate it. So, Mike, here's the thing. I've been reading about you online, and one one of the news articles that I read, it used the word claimed, which I hate that word because they've used that word with me as well. You know, so... Mike Jones claims to be one of the original members of Anonymous. Right. It's like Brett, John- Brett Johnson claims to have started the first organized cybercrime group. So <laughs> if, you, if you don't mind, why don't you tell the audience who you are, mm-hmm. and we'll go into some of your history and, and what happened and why now you're in the UK and not stateside. Oh, yeah. Great conversation. <laughs> um, so a little bit about me. Uh, like you said, my name is Mike Jones. Um, I was an early member of Anonymous. Sure. Uh, the word claim, I think, is used by a lot of media outlets to protect themselves, I think. I think you're um, probably right. With me, um, you know, I, I, it's, uh, it's obvious to anyone in the know who you are, who I am, everything mm-hmm. else. But it seems like the media is, is intent on, I don't know, it may be what you're saying, cover your ass or, or just right. leave that small room for doubt. But when I hear that, when I see that word or hear someone say it, it's like, okay, so they're already questioning me out of the gate. And, and your articles were, were very positive. I mean, I've only had in my three, four years of being a legal person, I've only had really two negative articles and it looks like most of your stuff is also positive as well. Yeah. I've only had one negative uh, article and it wasn't truly a hundred percent negative. It was from the international business times in 2016 when they called me a cyber terrorist in the headline (laughs) (laughs) that that caused that caused a few issues for for traveling and and legal issues oh geez i bet yeah i've not been called the terrorist yet (laughs) 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 yeah it was pretty shocking um but yeah i think they use claim a lot uh when it comes to people like us because news is supposed to be non-biased right 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 so they're not supposed to take sides they're just supposed to display the facts and sure. being a fact that it's anonymous and uh, the reporter really wasn't uh, in the group, it's right. kind of hard to vet those kind of things. No, I agree. And let, let me ask you this. So a lot of people, I mean, most people do know what anonymous is, what hacktivism is. But for any listeners out there who don't, would you like to explain what anonymous was, its, its mission, how it got started? Sure, sure. Um, so there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to anonymous. Uh, a lot of people think that Anonymous was started uh, you know, solely out of 4chan and that uh, most of the operations was harassing people, doxing people, uh, making people's lives miserable. Um, but really, that's not the ideology that we started out with. Uh, the ideology that we started out, started out with was to kind of level the playing field, if you will. Right. Um, you know, law enforcement, government. Uh, governments that were being oppressive to their own citizens, uh, human rights violations, things like that. Big corporations taking advantage advantage of people. Um, we went after those types of groups and people. Sure. 
and that's kind of where it started. Uh, and I remember, I, um, you know, just just to to point this out, I remember some of the the early articles on Anonymous. I mean, you guys were doing just amazing stuff. You know, it was uh, someone would claim that. Uh, that uh, an office somewhere had had mistreated them. The of course the business or the uh, the organization would deny it, and there would be part of anonymous that would go in and, and actually get the information and then publish it, so that Absolutely. you know they're protecting these people. And it was, I mean, it was extremely impressive. It really was. Absolutely, and that that's the ideology that we started out with. Um, the group now, as it stands, uh, it's been splintered several times uh, mm-hmm. into different groups. And some of those groups not keeping with the same ideology, some of the attacks that uh, were carried out going physical and kinetic um, really didn't fall in line with my belief system. Right. Uh, Ferguson was a big tipping point for me, uh, seeing people jumping on top of cars with anonymous mass on and starting fires was not, not something I wanted to portray. Now, were you part of anonymous when Ferguson happened or not? Uh, sort of, um, it's kind of, it's kind of muddy when it comes Mm -hmm. to timeline, as far as what I can and can't claim or take credit for, um, because of legal reasons. But yeah, I mean, I was still attached at that time. Right. Um, I didn't actually completely come out and walk away until 2016. Okay. So yeah, you were, you were a member for a while then or, or somewhat attached to it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's what made it kind of complicated getting out because during the investigations and, and some of the law enforcement interaction, um, people like Barrett Brown, uh, we actually got investigated by the same agent. Ah, gotcha. So yeah, it, it did get a little sticky at times. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that's a nice word, but it got a little sticky at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did. Um, but I can go into that later. There, there's, um, you know, I kind of played both sides of the fence at the same time. Both, I've been both. guilty of the same thing, yeah. as we know. So, so, so before we get into that, so, so the audience understands we're on the same page. What do you define hacktivism as? Hacktivism is, is using any kind of electronic means to basically, all right, if you look back during the Vietnam War, the protest, right? That is sort of a mirror image of what we were doing except for in a cyber realm. Um, but we're also getting a lot more time in prison for those types of protests as well. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, But yeah, that's, that's kind of, uh, that's, that's the backbone behind hacktivism. I mean, we helped the people in Iran, uh, get communications out when their government had shut down lines of communication. Um, we helped during, uh, the Arab spring, uh, right. I remember that. So, I mean, it's, uh, we tried to do things in kind of a Robin Hood way mm-hmm. uh, to help out the people that were being oppressed. And that's I, I guess, you know, the, the first real negative thing that, that I ever read about you guys mm-hmm. or about hacktivism, not necessarily anonymous, but about hacktivism was when, when PayPal stopped accepting WikiLeaks donations. Right, right. And a bunch of protesters decided to launch a DDoS attack against PayPal. Right. Um, that was really the first negative thing that I read about that. And um, would you like to speak about, because one of the things I'm interested in talking about, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge supporter of hacktivism 
when it's done properly. Um, you know, like for example, I was reading this morning about DerbyCon being shut down and now you've got all these people on Twitter that are bitching about, well, the reason it's shut down are all these social justice warriors and all these women. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there going, okay, you guys are idiots, but, right. um, you know, I'm a, I'm a supporter of, of social justice online. I think it's extremely important because a lot of online environments are extremely toxic. And not only that, but we've got a lot of problems out there that law enforcement cannot address. And it's up to the people to really take things into their own hands, but they need to do it in a proper way. So what the main conversation I want to talk about today, and we'll move over into sentencing and things like that, but I want to talk about the differences between proper hacktivism and crossing that line into engaging in an illegal activity and becoming basically what you're trying to fight against. Right. So the way that, the way that I look at it, you know, you're right. Hacktivism done correctly is very effective. Um, it could be a lifesaver in some, sure. some situations. Uh, but when it's done poorly, it creates a lot of problems and it also can cost people's lives actually. Right. Um, which is a shame. Uh, but the way that, the way that I look at hacktivism um, and what I term hacktivism and, and what's effective uh, is nowhere near what happened with PayPal, right? Oh, absolutely. So absolutely. When you, when you get operations like that against, you know, like let's say PayPal, that isn't necessarily an anonymous wide op. Um, and that's where a lot of people get confused is that some people will take credit for anonymous operations and then some people will carry out their own operations and put the claim on anonymous. Gotcha. Um, but there's really no control over that. Right. So when you're dealing with the collective, there's always going to be bad groups within every group, right? Bad people in every group. Sure. And they're loose cannons and you can't really control that. So I'm guessing, and l let me ask you, cause from my experience on the, the financial cybercrime side of things, we had the main large group, whether it be Shadow Crew or Carter Market or Carter's Planet or anything else like that. We had the, the main large group and it was kind of like a co-op. You know, you, people would come in and gather together for specific types of operations and then they would leave that main group or anything and they'd split them off on their own. But still, when the arrests came, it was all attributed to Shadow Crew or whatever main large group that was. I'm assuming, and I'm not trying to, to relate my cyber crimes to hacktivism. I'm not doing that at all. I'm just saying the, the relation sounds somewhat similar in that you've got these members that yes, they, they may be part of the collective of anonymous or they may even not be, but because anonymous is so well known that when one of these members does something criminal, it's attributed to the larger group instead of what they're doing off on the side. Yeah. I, I think, you know, you hit the nail right on the head when it comes to uh, convictions and, and pursuing people that have committed cyber crime. Right. Um, it's much easier to put a big label on, you know, a cyber crime and, and attribute it to a group sure. than it is to actually chase down individuals. And that way they can open up their net a lot wider. And, you know, what I've seen as far as people with an anonymous getting arrested, a lot of it is making an example out of people um, in hopes that it will slow down the rate of crime that, that's being carried out. Um, right. right. And it's, I mean, it's a shame, but that it, it does happen. You're, you're right. You're right. It does. And, and you know, one of the things that I've, uh, that I've been noticing, I kind of, and it's not just online, but it's in life in general is, is ten, things tend to move toward chaos. It's like the yeah. shabby book, all things fall apart. Mm -hmm. So, and you had mentioned that, that anonymous has splintered. It's, it's, you've had all these offshoot groups and everything else. 
So I'm wondering, you know, you guys started out top notch. You started out just a hundred percent doing everything you needed to, but you know, as, as, as you say, we've got new members coming into the group, everything else and things kind of start to splinter at that. So where, where is hacktivism headed today? Is it, is it going to, to regain that, that top notch, you know, that, that high morality status that it had when it first started out, or are we going to see hacktivism kind of continue to downgrade into because people are frustrated or they think they know better than anybody else into more of these criminal type DDoS assaults, things like that as time goes on. I think what we're going to see, um, I don't think you're going to see hacktivism completely go away. I think you're going to sure. see it change, change its identity a little bit. Um, you know, especially now that nation states are being more vocal about, you know, their own hacktivism, uh, like when Iran attacked the U.S., uh, you know, and, and threatened cyber war because of the drone attack. Right. Um, that, that to me is another form of hacktivism, uh, but it's just carried out by a government. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that you're going to see it change, mm-hmm. um, and it's not as effective as it used to be, but you still see the operations within anonymous that are trying to help out specific countries, which is uh, outstanding. I mean, it truly yeah. is, um, yeah. you, you mentioned Arab spring. I mean, what you guys did there and just across the board. And, and again, I am not, I support anonymous hundred percent that, that mission cause the, the idea of people, you know, doing what they can to make the world a better place, that is absolutely outstanding. It truly is. I mean, I have a great deal of respect for you and everything that your group did. You know, you've got these offshoot people that decide to take matters into their own hands because, you know, and, and that's the hacker mentality to a degree, right? As, I mean, we, right. we, we think, well, it's not getting done fast enough. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> give me the keyboard. <laughs> exactly. Give it, just give it to me. I'll take care of it. So what, what would you say that uh, to someone that, that is feeling like that, that, that may or may not be a member of anonymous, but, but has that type of mentality of, you know what, this, this guy is, he's denying being a, a rapist to all these women who came out and said this. I'm just going to take the matter into my own hands and get the information. I'm going to go in and steal the information or destroy the company that he has or anything else like that. What would you say to that person that, that is, is on the verge of doing an action like that? I would, I would tell that person to really think twice about what they're about to execute because right. it, I'll address the internet as a whole, right? So Mm -hmm. the internet as a whole is, is, is in its infancy stage. It has not been around that long. Um, Case law for cybercrime has not been around that much. And there's not a whole lot of it for judges to refer to. Right. So before a person decides to go in and destroy somebody's life or take down a corporation, they should really think about, are they okay with accepting the risk of what's going to happen to them afterwards? Because I can tell you that when it comes to law enforcement um, in certain countries, they will go above and beyond limitations. <laughs> They'll make examples of people and they'll even exile you in, in foreign countries. So it's, it's interesting that you said that. <laughs> so you, you got in a bit of a mess with law enforcement here in the United States. I, I did. I did. And, so, so uh, what happened there? So, so let's talk about that a minute. Then, then I want to talk about sentencing because you're, you're really big about pointing out the discrepancy in sentencing compared, you know, for 
cyber criminals or hacktivists, and I, those are two different things. Right. But the differences between sentencing on those people compared to the sentencing on, say, pedophiles or rapists or murderers, exactly. things like that. So, what, what, how did you get in trouble? Well, it went back to, uh, I would say, about two thousand eight. Probably is when it really, really first started. Um, I went to DefCon out in Las Vegas and was interviewed for a documentary documentary called Hackers Are People Too. Sure. Um, in that documentary, I was really vocal about the people creating the laws in DC regarding cybercrime. Um, and I, I guess some agencies in the US didn't take too kindly to that and right. started making, you know, routine house calls and taking out the lunch type deal. Um, which I thought nothing about, you know, I, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong by listening my opinion. So, so you got the visit, you, you appear yeah. in the film and then you got the visit. Got the visit right? <laughs> Let's yeah. go out to lunch and talk. Yeah. At work nonetheless. Oh, so, yeah. It was, it was an interesting day. Um, so it started from there and then they started asking questions about Barrett Brown. They started asking questions about anonymous and, and some other things that were going on. And I thought that was really peculiar. You know, because I, at that point in time, yeah, I'd been involved in some operations, but there was no way that they could link me to those operations at that time. Right. Um, but it took a little bit of play on other anonymous members to give up some names. And that's how that investigation kind of spread. Okay. And, and just, just to backtrack for just a second, for the audience who doesn't know, could you explain what Barrett Brown did? Barrett Brown, uh, Claimed to be, I'll use that word claim, claimed to be the, the voice of Anonymous. Right. Um, he made several threats to FBI agents, um, even after he was put in prison. Uh, he was very vocal, super vocal. Right. And he actually got taken down on, I think it was Tiny Chat Video. Um, he was in a video conference. It was late at night, him and his girlfriend. Uh, with a group of people and you can watch him get banned right there live on video. <laughs> they cut the power and everything. <laughs> and so, so that people understand when, when you go and you, you decide that you're going to threaten law enforcement, they take exception to that. <laughs> <laughs> Something I've never done. <laughs> right. And, 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 you know, when you do that, they're going to make an example of you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If, if you claim to be the voice behind any movement, oh, yeah. you can guarantee that you're going to get some sort of prison time, whether, whether it's a fact or not. Right. Just that claim is going to get you behind bars. Right. Exactly. If you, if you will be the person that stands up and say, I'll say this, yep. you, you could suffer from that. So you need to make sure that if you are going to do something that, that you're above and beyond, uh, above and beyond legally on every single thing you possibly can. Exactly. Now, now, Barrett ended up, what was he finally convicted of and how much time did he get and everything? Oh, he got multiple years. I, I don't know exactly what he was convicted of. Mm -hmm. that, that whole case was kind of confusing to me. It was, it was. Um, but, you know, that, that's Barrett. Barrett's an eccentric person. And, he and, is, and <laughs> to say the least, he is. <laughs> he's a nice guy, but he's very eccentric. And that became a media circus. Um, sure. And luckily I was able to kind of, skate out of the, the situation. Right. And you, so, so law enforcement, they come and pick you up. Yes or no? Um, actually they came to, to my business okay. and talked to me there. Um, when law enforcement and I actually had a sit down meeting, uh, kind of a come to Jesus meeting mm -hmm. was back in 2016. And that's when 
they, I had met them at the Wells Fargo building in downtown Houston, okay. um, which is where the, I guess the U S attorney's office is situated. Um, I walked in, there was several agents, FBI agents sitting around the table. There was U S attorney's office, um, my lawyer, myself, a uh, Russian linguist from the FBI, <laughs> a couple other people. Um, and it was a very interesting conversation. Uh, basically, there was some forms and some documents that came out of that conversation. Um, there was an OIA that was, was signed and issued. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean. It, so there it, was it, an OIA that was signed and issued on that as well. Yeah, there, there okay. was actually several. Um, every, it seemed like every other month I was signing an OIA. I've signed several of those as well. Would you like to tell everyone what that is? <laughs> <laughs> so law enforcement and the government like to investigate and their way of investigating sometimes may include breaking of the law. Right. Um, and that's kind of OIA was kind of given me the green light to carry out what they instructed me to do, even if it was illegal. Right. So the O and the IA is illegal activity. What does that O stand for again? Otherwise. Otherwise illegal activity. Right. Which is basically the, and so the audience understands it's the, the, whatever law enforcement organization it is, they go to the, uh, the prosecuting attorney in that district and they get an authorization to conduct a specific spectrum of illegal activity for that investigation. Right. Correct. And uh, what I really found kind of curious, and I had to pass it by my lawyer several times in order to really understand what was going on, was I was being brought in because I had supposedly committed a crime. Ah. And now I'm signing a piece of paperwork saying that it's okay to commit another crime similar, sure. but just under the auspice of the FBI. So now you were at this, I, I guess since an OIA was in place, that you were at that point working as an informant or not? Yeah, yeah I was okay. an informant. Um, the way that we, uh, structured it, my lawyer and myself, um, is that we were not doing any kind of, uh, intelligence or intelligence gathering on domestic groups. Um, and that was the reason for the Russian linguist, um, at the table. Um, I can't really go into a whole lot of that. No, absolutely. I'm, I, and I won't ask, um, but you yeah. did work as an informant. So, and here's the thing. I mean, I, you know, I did that as well. Mm-hmm. When, and you didn't serve any prison time, right? No, luckily not. So, you know, when you go to prison, <laughs> <laughs> the thing that is frowned on more than anything, well, the thing that's frowned on more than anything are the pedophiles. Right. But right. second most frowned upon are the snitches, the informants. Snitches. Right. And, you know, so, I, you know, I served five and a half, six years. Mm-hmm. And I didn't find out until I got out that most of the people behind the fence in federal prisons are informants. Yep. You know, that's the thing is they, they bitch a lot about it, but mm. in truth, most of them are informants and the feds even tell you this when you're, when you're about to take the plea and you're about to become an informant, they, they tell you, Hey, there are two types of people in prison, those who talk and those who wish they had. Yeah. And that's exactly <laughs> what I found out at that point. Um, how was, because I had a, I had a pretty unique experience being an informant. Mm. How was your experience being there? It was intense. Yeah. Um, How many hours a day did you work at that? Uh, to be honest with you, I don't even know. Okay. Um, I, I, it was 
constant because the time zones I was working in were ah, overseas. Right, right, right. Now, did you, now when you were doing, were you off on your own doing this or did you have direct supervision? Cause when I was in it, I had direct supervision under oh, yeah. service. So oh, yours yeah. was direct as well. Direct, absolutely direct. <laughs> <laughs> we have to make sure we know everything, single thing you're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a linguist that, that, looked at the communications. I had an email account that um, was kind of set aside by them. I had phone numbers that were directly to them. Okay. Um, yeah, everything was monitored pretty, pretty strictly. Okay. And I, I guess that on the systems you were using, they had something like Camtasia or a Spectre Pro, something like that. Actually, no. So that, uh-huh. that was the interesting part. Um, I was pretty forthcoming with the stuff I was handing over to them. Okay. Um, they had agreed to, cause I didn't want to do any of this on my own systems Sure, you know, for obvious reasons, but they offered to give me a laptop. And at that point I was, you know, really weary of taking anything from the government. Well, sure. Like, why, don't you just give me, why don't you just give me the cash and I'll go get my own computer. Right. <laughs> so that's what I did. Um, do I, do I think that they were monitoring me in other ways? Oh, absolutely. Sure. I, I don't doubt that at all. Um, because there, there was some, some information that came out before I became an informant that can only be gleaned from tapping my internet connection. I gotcha. Gotcha. And, and just, just kind of backtrack for a second. We, we didn't really talk about, so we, we went directly into the hacktivism and anonymous and everything, but you, you have been a top security guy throughout your entire career. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say top. I, I would say very proactive sure. and wanted to learn everything I could about every piece of technology. So you, uh, you did pen testing. You were director of security services at one point, um, mm-hmm. penetration testing, security, everything else throughout. So you, you've got a, a really solid background in, in technology, computer science, and things like that as well. Right. Okay. So, so when the, when they brought you in to be an informant, you knew what the hell you were doing. I mean, you, there was no doubt you were, you were experienced, you knew the game, you knew everything else that was going on at that point. Yeah. It it was just a matter of navigation at that point. Um, the handlers that I had with the FBI were, were pretty decent. Um, the, the linguist was okay. And my, my lawyer really, I, I can't say enough about my lawyer. He, he went above and beyond what he should have done. Now, was yours, was yours a paid attorney or a public pretender? He was neither. Um, ah. So when I fell into this whole um, ball of mess, um, there was a news anchor from Houston, from NBC affiliate, who reached out and got me connected with David Adler. Um, David Adler is is former CIA. Um, He also helped get another um, guy out of prison after several years uh, that was in there for um, doing some kind of uh, shady deal with a foreign country. Sure. And he said that he was doing it under the auspice of the CIA. CIA denied it. And David Adler came in with his clearance and got him and said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I had an excellent lawyer and I can't say enough about him. Um, good, good. And he really gave me insight as to what was going to happen, who was going to be at the meetings, and how to handle myself. So, okay. Did, so, so you're me. you're you're working as an informant. You've got this this excellent attorney, which I did not. I had a guy that no shit about it. The guy looked exactly like Billy D. Williams, Lando Calrissian. 
Oh, that's Lord. what he looked like. He had he had the jerry curls. He had all that kind of stuff. And I'm sitting there going, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> but to, to be honest, I could have had the most expensive attorney on the planet and it would have been any better. No, not at all. <laughs> but so, so you're working as as an informant. Mm-hmm. How the outcome of that? Mm-hmm. Was it a positive outcome? Was it negative? Because you're no longer in the United States. Yeah, so it's kind of confusing to me, the, the end of it, um, because there were, really was no absolute closure. Okay. Uh, I helped them get what they wanted, and after that, the communication just kind of died. Um, right. So, you know, to, my, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know if you, they may still have a case pending. Who knows? Okay. But I did my portion and, you know, did everything they asked me to do. Never violated an OIA, um, never leaked information. So sure. in my eyes, I'm good. Um, now, being stuck in, in the UK is a different story. I'm not really sure how that all came to be other than um, back in July, I had some health issues, had to go mm-hmm. to the hospital, was about to fly out that day to the States. Um, so I'm in the, I'm in the uh, ambulance on the way to the hospital. My passport, I have a habit of hiding my passport in every hotel room I go to. Sure. Um, just habit. And I had put it under the mattress between two framing boards. Okay. And when we went back to get the luggage, everything was fine, except for my passport was gone. <laughs> and it happened while I was in the ambulance. Um, so someone right. had gone in there immediately after I had been taken by ambulance and snagged, snagged that uh, passport. So I, entire, so I guess the room looked pretty much untouched except yeah. for the missing passport. Okay. Absolutely. Looked like nobody had been in there. Um, so I go to the embassy and I try to file for an emergency passport. They said they were very helpful in getting me to fill out a missing passport or a lost or, or stolen passport mm-hmm. documentation, which killed my previous passport. Right. Um, they were very helpful on that. So I got that done. But then when I went to get the emergency passport, um, it was denied. And denied? said it was under investigation. And, uh, and how long ago was this? This was back in July. Okay. So, you know, here it is, January. I still have no passport. Um, I've contacted a sender in, in uh, the States, uh, governor in Texas. Um, but I really don't see anything happening. Um, so what, what was the response from, from state department, from the, the contact you had in Texas, things like that? There really is no response that's helpful whatsoever. Just, just um, a nonsense, a, a nothing response then. Yeah. Basically, so you're basically a man without a country. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I mean. Jeez, oh, jeez. Without geez. identification even. So I have, I have to be on uh, maintenance medication, right? So in order to get that medication, I have to go through the emergency room. Mm-hmm. at a London hospital every month just to get medication. Oh, geez. Yeah, it's, it's a mess. But, you know, it's, again, when you talk about people who are about to commit some sort of cybercrime or you know, do something based on their belief system, right? they should probably think twice. They should think twice. You're, you're right about that. And, and so what's the, what's the British government saying? Do they know about your, your problems with the passport and, and staying in country right now and everything or not? Um, I went to the U S embassy and I talked to them. Um, I've done a lot of work with law enforcement here. 
Okay. I've kind of given them the, you know, the information on what's going on. Um, but really there's nothing that they can do. Uh, to oh, help, wow. Which is, so it's, it's basically sit and wait and just hope yeah. that something happens is what's going on. Basically. basically. Wow, man. Jeez. Yeah. Jeez. See, I don't even know what to, to, to <laughs> say about that. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> you know, I, I sent a, an email to a, a Senator a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. and I said, you know, for someone who's served in the military twice, uh, with honorable mention, you know, right. honorable release and, and I have medals. How is this possible? How am I stuck in another country? Let's say it was something legal from back in the day. You know, what, what are you accomplishing by exiling me in, in London? I agree. You know? So it it's, it's, and you're right. It's, it's just exile. So it's, it's not giving you prison time. No. It's catching you gone someplace and saying, Hey, yeah. it doesn't look like you're coming back anytime soon. Exactly. It, the, the curious part about it too, is that this past year I flew back and forth probably once a month for work. Oh, wow. So they had plenty of opportunity to deny me, you know, exit from the U S or, sure. you know, cancel my passport, but they waited until, the passport came up missing to cut ties with me, which I think was pretty cowardly. Right. Which it's, and that's uh, kind of interesting as well. I mean, it's, it really is. It, it sounds like, you know, we don't, we don't really have much of a case, right. but at the same time, we want to try to screw with this guy. Mm-hmm. The easiest and way I, to do it is just to, you know, black hole him. Yeah. And that's what goes missing. And all of a sudden, you know, Hey, we're working on it. We'll get to it when we can. Yeah. Or not. Right. Um, and I, I don't buy into conspiracy theories for the most part, but going through what we've been through with, with law enforcement and being dealt with by the secret service and by other branches in the government, you know, I, I can't help but think that the disappearing passport. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean that, I, and honestly, Mike, I got to tell you now, if, if I were really, if I were in a position of power and I really wanted to screw with somebody, yeah. that would be one of the ways. Yeah. It really would. I mean, and I'm, I'm with you. I'm not the foil hat wearing guy. I'm not the conspiracy theorist guy, but that you, ha- you kind of have to sit back and say, you know, that would fuck with a guy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and I mean, I've, I've worked for some of the intelligence agencies as well and seeing what goes on and, and I've dealt with assets as a handler sure. and it, it's, it's not always pretty. Right. And you can't always explain it, but you know, and it is, it is what it is. And I just have to deal with it and learn how to cope with it. You're right. And, and hats off to you for dealing with it and, and for the work that you're doing right now over there and everything else. Um, one of the things that, that you mentioned is, you know, these consequences and most of the time, the consequences are, are, are above board. You, you cross a line of a written law and you suffer a negative consequence. And one of the things you've been talking, talking about that I've seen on LinkedIn pretty, pretty frequently is the sentencing for people who violate online laws, uh, financial um, hacktivist laws, things like that. Um, would you like to speak to that for a minute? Cause I, I, I know that you're, you're really big about talking about the sentencing discrepancy based on of those crimes based on even what I feel are, are, and I think everyone out there feels are much more intolerable types of crimes, you know, rape, pedophilia, stuff like that. Right. Exactly. I mean, let's start, you know, back with, I guess it was 2010, maybe 2011 with Albert Gonzalez, right? 
Oh yeah. So, Friend of mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He got 20 years, 20 years. He did. He got two 20 year prison sentences for, <laughs> for his, uh, yeah, for yeah. What was, it was uh, TJ Max, yeah. Heartland payment systems and Dave and Busters were those breaches, 170 million credit card numbers. And they, if they would have taken, if he would have taken it to trial, mm-hmm. the losses were pegged at right at 50 billion with a B dollars. <laughs> Right. So they came to him and they said, Hey, we could, we can go with a dollar amount of 50 billion, or you can just plead guilty to these two year, two 20 year prison sentences. What do you want to do? <laughs> exactly. And that, that, that seems to be the de facto as far as, you know, looking at uh, crime and punishment is stacking up charges. Right. And I mean, I, I saw it with a friend of mine, Fidel Salinas, right? So he mm-hmm. had, I think he was facing something like 44 felony charges. <laughs> <laughs> I was did, 39. So. <laughs> yeah, like 44. And it, they basically told him, you know, if you become an informant, we'll make this go away. Well, right. Fidel's a solid guy. Mm-hmm. And Fidel turned it down. Well, his lawyer, they negotiated. He turned it down. He turned it down. He was okay. not going to be a CI. Okay. Um, and so they, they decreased it somewhat a good bit, but it still didn't take away the fact that he was doing more time than, than some of the murderers. In this, in You're absolutely same. right. You're absolutely right. And, and just, you know, <laughs> they came to me. So when I, when I signed on as an informant, I don't know, I, I may have had five or six charges is what mm-hmm. I had. Of course, I ended up after I screwed over the Secret Service, I ended up with 39 that I pled <laughs> guilty to. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So, so when Fidel says, I'm not going to be a CI, I'm, I'm looking over like, huh, wonder yeah. how that would work if I would have said that, yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. But, uh, I mean, you're right. I mean, so it's, and, and here's the thing. I, I, and I, I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm of the opinion that if you're an adult and you violate a law and a, a serious law, you know, you're, you're victimizing people, whether financially or, or physically, I think that you need to serve some prison time. I think if you're a child that to put you behind the fence or behind bars, even with other children is, is completely wrong. Right. But, um, and I I agree with you. I mean, I think the discrepancy, there's something wrong where we live in a world that when someone murders someone else, they're out in six years or when they, uh, they're a pedophile and they're downloading pictures of, of children that have been victimized or watching these videos or trading them as currency, things like that. Right. And they only get five or seven years compared to even Albert Gonzalez, who, who did steal a lot. He victimized a lot of people. He didn't physically do anything to them, but he gets 20 years. There's yeah. something wrong with that. Yeah. And that's, that's what I focus on. That's what I've been focusing on since 2008 um, is pretty much the, the, the state of, you know, the health for cybercrime and, and cyber law. Um, I did a talk at, at Cambridge university uh, mm-hmm. this past year uh, talking about the future of cybercrime and why we just can't seem to get it right. Um, no, we can't. It, I, <laughs> no, it, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. Um, but I, I think if you look at, the internet and you look at, you know, the way the U S was founded mm-hmm. and how we pushed West and how it was the wild West and laws were kind of, you know, give and take and kind of sprung up out of the blue. We're dealing with that same type of mentality on the internet. Right. Um, the yeah. When I, when uh, shadow crew was busted, mm-hmm. we didn't have a lot of the, uh, you know, the online computer crime laws as far as financial goes. We didn't have the, uh, the credit card laws that were in place or anything else like that. Right. And because of shadow crew, 
they rewrote the the sentencing guidelines of credit card theft, uh, right. and they made it where every credit card that's stolen, regardless of whether uh, of how much it's got on it, it can have zero dollars, can have thirty thousand dollars on the card. Each card is now valued at five hundred dollars each. Uh, wow. And the Shadow Crew guys on that initial roundup, that was um, October 26, 2004. Mm-hmm. The credit card guys on that, they only got, they had caps of five years. If you go ahead and plead, we'll just give you five and be done with it. And that, that, that seems, to me, that seems somewhat reasonable. You know, you're serving yeah. five, you screwed around. And, and then later on, we see these sentences of Albert getting 20 years, of uh, right. Ross Ulbrich, he gets life in prison. And, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll grant you Ross Ulbrich, he's a drug trafficker. Yes, he tried to hire some hit men to take out competition, whatever you want to call it. Right. But still, the yeah. guy, and I think he needs prison time. Yeah. <laughs> but life, I'm not yeah. quite sure about that. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's sad, too, because when you look at the Internet, it encompasses the, the entire globe. And the laws are so disparate among right. the different countries that connect to the same internet, which slays me. Like I, I, I talked about this at, at my last conference, uh, the National Information Security Conference sure. in uh, England. And until we get some governing body, I'm not saying Interpol, I'm not saying the U.S. needs to own the internet, but I do think when it comes to cybercrime, we need to have a cybercrime court, an international court. Right. That we can, right. we can take away the bias of the borders. We can take away the bias of nation state actors and deal strictly with what is truly considered cyber crime. I, I agree. I agree. And, you know, to, to that, what I, the thing is, and I was, I was actually talking to a, a federal prosecutor a couple of days ago, and I had mentioned this to him. And he was like, well, Brett, I mean, the, the laws, there's guidelines. <laughs> That's, that, was his, that was what he said. There are guidelines. You have to go by the guidelines. The judge really doesn't have much option in that. But it seems to me, I mean, it, it's, 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 this, it's, it's where everything's so desperate on, disparate on there. I mean, we, we, we're looking at a criminal sentencing system, at least in the United States, where, you know, you've got the drug sentencing guidelines. You've got the cybercrime sentencing guidelines. You've got the sexual guidelines. You've got all these right. different guidelines, and none of them have been put together in relation to the other areas of crime so that, you know, they look strictly at say the pedophiles. Well, this is what happens to a pedophile. If you're just downloading pictures, we're going to give you five years. If you try to meet a girl, we're going to give you 10 to 15. If you're having sex with a, with a, with a, with a minor and filming it, you're going to get 25 or more. Right. So that that's, but they don't look at that in relation to the cyber criminal guys, you know, financial cyber crime guys. And they're saying, well, you know, you steal credit cards, we're going to give you five, you know, you, you still, you cause a hundred million dollars in damage. You're going to get 20. They don't, they don't look at that in relation to each other. And I think that's what we need to be doing is looking at crime as a whole and developing sentencing guidelines on that. Yeah. And I, I, I come from the school of thought that, you know, if, if you get compromised, if you're a large corporation and you get compromised of $170 million worth of credit card numbers, <laughs> where's your jail time? Oh, 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 we just opened a can of worms there. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and I guess that, that brings on this final topic that I mentioned at the beginning of the show is this idea of privacy online. Yeah. See, I'm, and I'll, I'll tell you where I'm at. You know, I, we've got Edward Snowden. We've got Bradley slash Chelsea Manning. We've got these two are, are the big ones as far as my purview of things go. And, right. and my, my thing is, is, you know what? Honestly, I, I respect 
Chelsea Manning a hell of a lot more than I respect Ed Snowden. At least Amen. Manning stuck around to face the consequences. Amen. I, and I, I, I can appreciate that. Yeah, and Snowden, he runs over to, to Russia where, let's be honest now, he can't really say much about old Vlad Putin over there. <laughs> <laughs> because he needs to stay over there for a while. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and it's a shame too, because when you look at what Snowden did, I, I agree with, with his thought process, mm -hmm. but I totally disagree with the way he carried it out. No, I, I, would, I would concur with that. My, my issue with Snowden and with, with Manning both is mm -hmm. that, you know, you signed on to, to house the government's secrets and to be right. a, a custodian of that. And not only did you, did you steal that and, and betray that trust, but you also stole enough documents that there was no possible way that any human could ever go through it, the, as much data as you took. Right. It was just not. I mean, uh, Manning, just Manning, if you were to print out those documents, it would fill a dump truck. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, it, it's, so there's no way you know exactly what you're taking. And w I think both of us know that you know, you, you, the government's not allowed to talk because it's a secrecy thing. You're not allowed to talk about the, the data that's being gathered, whether it's saving lives or not. Right. Exactly. And, and I, I think that it's, it's to anyone who really looks at it, did that data potentially cost lives? And I think the answer is yes. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think you're correct with that. Um, when it comes to Snowden, that's still a little, a little gray, I think. Right. Um, a lot of what he exposed were things that we already knew. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So the, mon the monitoring portion of it, I mean, that's been going on as long as I've been alive. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you got to look at, at, did it cost human lives? Um, and we dealt with the same thing with anonymous. Uh, sure. And that's one of the driving factors that, that, you know, why I left was, you know, when, when you go and dock somebody, you can't guarantee their mental status or you, you don't know what's going on in their personal lives and right. how that's going to affect them. And when someone takes their own life because of something that, that you've done electronically, that puts a burden, Absolutely. a huge burden on somebody. I mean, there's, there's a culpability there. There's a responsibility. Yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right. And, but do I, think, do I think they should be charged with murder or, or manslaughter or whatever? Probably not because I'm not responsible for that other person's state. No, I, I would agree. It's, it, it's ultimately, I mean, if you're talking about suicide, yeah. Or, or a guy going out and murdering other people. It, it is not, it, it's not the person who docks that person. It's that person's choice right. to either take their own life or to go out and, and try to kill somebody right. because they're upset. It, it, it boils down to that person's specific choice to do that. And I agree completely with you there. Uh, one of the things that, so, you know, we're talking about the government there and, and with me, and I, I'd, I'd like to get your view on that as well. I don't think that we have really any privacy online and I'm not sure that to, to a degree. And a lot of it depends on that custodial argument. Who are the custodians of the data? Because I, what I see working in the fraud arena and the financial cybercrime arena is that the more data that's collected on our identities by companies, right. the, the safer 
people become because we're more, we're better able to determine that person's online identity because identity these days is more than just your social security number, your date of birth, your name and address. It's your biometrics. It's all these things. It's, it's your associates, your likes, dislikes, where you visit everything else. So, so from that viewpoint, what I see is that collection of data as long, and that's the huge caveat for me, as long as the custodian of the data is trustworthy, it makes people safer. Now, I say that because we have groups like Facebook out there mm-hmm. who really can't be trusted to be good custodians of our data. Right. And I, I'm just kind of wondering what your viewpoint on that kind of, the kind of thing is. Well, when it comes to, to personal data, and I always tell people when, it, when they ask me, how can I be safe on the internet? Mm-hmm. How can I keep my identity safe on the internet? The answer is you can't. Right. <laughs> you can't. If that, someone that's, really, that's the short answer. You can't. <laughs> if, if someone really wants your identity, they're going to take it. Right. Um, now, you look at companies like Cambridge Analytica and, and Facebook and, and places like that. Um, we know that, that our, our identity, our data is exposed in all different types of places. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you're going to find a custodian that's going to act in a responsible manner with that data. And I, I honestly, I think that, um, I think I pretty much agree with that. I really yeah. do. I mean, I liked the, um, so, you know, ring had their compromise a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and they came out and they, they, they put a nice forward, forward looking face on it of, you know, we fired these people, we've done this, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, they, they've marketed the product for something that it never really did. It's a camera. It doesn't stop crime. No. So it's, it's, and are they really good custodians of the data? Probably not. But, so you, but you know, who's worse at the, at being a custodial custodian of that data, especially from ring. Right. So mm-hmm. a little bit of background on how ring kind of evolved where I'm from. Okay. Um, there were some issues in Houston with uh, crime in certain neighborhoods. So the police department set up a website and said, Hey, look, if you give us access to your ring devices, it'll make your neighborhood a lot safer. Sure. Um, so people opted into this giving over their video to the police department. Uh, the problem with that is that, I mean, that violates so many <laughs> privacy you know, issues, right? I, I don't want somebody sitting on my doorstep, listening to my audio, looking at my video, seeing what time I come and go. Right. But that's where we've gotten to. Right. Um, and and, and no so back. you've been over in the UK for a while. And what I've noticed, uh, you know, I've been to the few, UK a few times recently mm-hmm. and Europe and UK, the, the citizens there have a much different viewpoint of privacy yeah. than we do in the United States. In the United States, it's like the citizens here, eh, we don't really care. You give us something free. We don't mm-hmm. care what you do with it. Right. Right. <laughs> and that sounds like what you're saying with this, I mean, with the ring and, and, Certainly. I mean, I, I have seen the videos and, and I've read the law enforcement investigations of, you know, while, while one ring system in a neighborhood, it won't catch the criminal coming in and stealing packages off of front porches. But you put a system in there that, you know, you've, you've got all these different people and they're all interconnected and law enforcement's able to pull all the videos from that. They can see who's coming in and stealing packages or breaking in homes and things like that. That's certainly a good argument. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. What's the cost of that? is you're giving up your 
entire privacy. Now everyone's able to see when you're coming and going, what you're doing, what you're bringing in your house, everything else like that. Yep. And I think uh, Benjamin Franklin had a quote about that. He did. About giving up security and, and uh, you know, for looking, looking for some warm blanket of security from the government. Yeah, it was something along the lines of those who would give up privacy and security for our privacy and whatever for 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 security deserve neither. Neither. Yep. Right. And it's true. <laughs> it's very true. You know, especially like London is the most surveilled city in the world. There's, I right. think, there's a total of like 140,000 surveillance cameras. I mean, you could walk on any any street in London and look up at a street street sign or a lamppost and see at least 10 cameras hanging from it. And those cameras don't stop crime, do they? No, no, they, they sure don't. <laughs> they sure I mean, don't. I don't read much about, uh, you know, firearm assaults in London, but no. I read a whole lot about machetes. <laughs> machetes and stabbings and people running over people. And yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, that's, that's, we can try to get a handle on privacy, but I mean, what it all boils down to is when, when you're on the internet, Compute and carry out your, your business as if someone is sitting over your sh- shoulder watching every movie. I agree. I agree. I agree. Because it's, it's recorded somewhere. Someone's going to have access to it. And even if it is a responsible guardian, right? Even if it is a company that, that has never had an issue, never been compromised, all it takes is one insider into that company. That's right. That's right. And, and, and insiders are prolific. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Mike, I appreciate it. Why don't you tell the audience what you're doing these days? Because I'm I'm extremely impressed with all the work you're doing right now. Man, it's it's been busy. This past year has been uh, just a whirlwind. I came over uh, a year ago last November and gave a talk at a Scottish uh, college university, Robert Gordon University, to I guess it was, I guess it was about fifty people, mm-hmm. um, and just basically talking about my story and and where I came from and where I am now. And it kind of blew up into a full-blown speaking tour. And now I'm giving talks everywhere and, and helping uh, the London Met Police with their cyber prevent program for the kids. Outstanding. Uh, How long have you been working with the, uh, the London Police now? For about a year. Outstanding. Um, Outstanding. I did their, I did their first uh, intervention workshop um, back last February. Okay. And uh, they basically, what they do is they bring in kids who have been identified as being potential cyber criminals who have mm-hmm. committed low-level cyber crime, whether it be hacking their school or dosing a gaming network or, you know, just something that, that they're not going to convict on, right. but they want to get a handle on. So they bring these kids in, they bring in people from businesses and show them the career paths that they could have with the skill set that they have. And then they brought me in to talk to them about where you could potentially end up if you don't stop outstanding and where you can end up if you change your path now. I and love it. I, I absolutely love that. And that's, um, you know, that's one of the groups I try to talk to our, our, our children that are in danger because children are very inquisitive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they are. And if you, if you get in there right now and mentor them and then take them under your wing, like you're doing, I mean, that's, that's amazing stuff. Hats off to you on that. Oh, the kids are amazing. There was, I think the youngest I've seen so far is 11. Oh, wow. Which is <laughs> um, brilliant. Uh, they could find their way through a network quicker than, than most of the guys have been in the industry for a very long time. Um, <laughs> but they also have a, have a different side to them as well um, that the UK is starting to really address and, and get on top of is the fact that a good majority of the people who do what we do mm-hmm. have some sort of autism. 
I agree. I agree. I, and that's, I, I often, I, when I told my wife that, uh, that I had a degree kind of like Asperger's, mm-hmm. she kind of laughed at that. Yeah. But you know, over the past few years that we've known each other and been married, she, she now looks at me. She's like, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely yeah. right. And uh, that's one of the things I noticed is that a lot of the, the more successful people do have some, it's, it's almost like some form of autism yeah. where you, where you focus more, you're just more dedicated. It, it, it's, it's not really a career or a job. It's more of a life where you're yeah. online. And it's, it's very interesting. Very interesting. You've mentioned that. Yeah, the, the kids that, that struggle with Asperger's, um, I find it really easy to connect with them and, and their parents are, are the, the common factor with all the parents at that last intervention workshop I went to was just desire to connect with their children. They didn't right. know how to help their kids. And really the kids didn't think that they were doing anything wrong. And one commonality I found between the UK and the US and the different individuals I've worked with is that nobody seems to know the black and white letters of the CMA, the computer misuse act. (laughs) I sat in a university in Glasgow last year Mm -hmm. and it was me, a policeman from the cybercrime unit and a a professor. And we're on a panel discussion and me and the policeman were, were speaking about the CMA and, and, how vague it can be sometimes. Right. And the professor of the computer science group at this major university stopped us and asked us, can you please tell me what the CMA is? I, you know, I would act surprised <laughs> about that. <laughs> <laughs> but I have seen the exact same thing. I just, I was shocked. And, and countries wonder why there are so many cyber crimes from yeah. even like a, a low level from, from like kids and teenagers. There's nobody explaining these laws to these kids. Nobody, nobody. nobody. And, and one of the they things I've noticed is there's a huge discrepancy at universities, the training level with security professionals. There's a huge discrepancy between what they're trained on and real world circumstances. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And that, that's that's why today I, you know, I talk free at universities. I, I go in because one of the first conferences I gave was an academic conference in uh, Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And a guy, they brought in all these PhD students. And they were all talking about their papers and their, their, what they were studying and everything. And this guy's up there from Hong Kong and he's talking about all the fraud, the cyber fraud that's taking place in Hong Kong. And he talks for 35 minutes and then he has a Q&A. And I did not mean to hurt the guy, but I raised my hand and he says, you. And I was like, yes, can you tell me what the number one fraud is right now in Hong Kong? And he lost it. He had no idea. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, dude, you just did a, pe- your, your PhD is on this. <laughs> and he was like, I guess it would be call center fraud. And he's asking me. And I'm like, why are you asking me? You're the guy. You're, you're the expert. <laughs> so one of the things that, that I decided at that point is, you know, it's, it's important for me to go in and talk to students and universities about bridging that gap between right. university training and real world experience. Exactly. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do with, with the universities here. Um, most of my talks are at universities or for law enforcement. Okay. Uh, so I'm trying to, trying to help build, you know, build some kind of rapport between law enforcement and the kids and, and Beautiful. provide some sort of, you know, bridge between the parents and the kids. Right. Uh, because right. I, I can understand on both sides. Um, but as far as leniency goes, when it comes to sentencing and, and cyber law, the UK when I, when I first heard about the prevent program, mm-hmm. 
and the law enforcement not wanting to convict, but to help these kids was shocking. It's extraordinary. It really because is. Nowhere in the world does anybody else do that. Right. It's absolutely extraordinary. It truly if is. Our, if you understand, the, the New York Police Department came over here last year, late mm-hmm. last year, after I helped out with the intervention workshop and met with the London Met Police. And I guess this program is going to start up in the U.S. Uh, oh, I hope so. Well. I truly do. I, it wasn't, it was about six months ago, I was at a conference and I was talking about, you know, sentencing. And I basically said what I told you, if you're an adult, serve some time, it'll do you some good. If you're a child, hell no. Right. Just get some mentorship to help the child find that proper direction. Mm-hmm federal law enforcement officer walks up to me after that and he's, he's a little upset. He's like, so why don't you want to put kids in jail? <laughs> and I'm like, and it got me so bad. I looked at him. I was like, because they're kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, not only that, but you have to look at responsibility, right? So yes. does, do the people who make the laws and the people who enforce the laws communicate that law to those kids effectively? No, absolutely not. So absolutely. that they know the law, that they don't break the law. It right. doesn't happen. So how can you hold a child who's 11, 12 years old, completely responsible for something he has no earthly idea went wrong? I agree. I agree completely, completely. So Mike, we're, we're doing, you're doing the speaking. Do you do uh, consulting as well? I know you do pen testing. I do pen testing. I do threat intelligence. I've, I've been doing threat intelligence for a very long time. Um, even when I was with anonymous. I was still doing, you know, threat intelligence. Um, but yeah, I, I still do that. I still do research. I still develop exploits, um, okay. but not sold on the black market. And if, so. if someone wants to contact you to, and, and here's my thing, I'm, 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 I'm saying it out loud. So everyone knows Mike Jones, if you need consulting, if you need pen testing, if you need a good speaker, anything else like that, Mike Jones is one of the go-to guys for this. He really is. So, so how can someone contact you if they're looking to have you speak to them, to help out, to do some threat intel, some consulting, pen testing, anything like that? They can, they can find me on LinkedIn or I'm also on Twitter as well. Um, S-T-I-N-G-3-R 2013. Is, is the um, handle on that. Yeah, Mike, and I was... I respond to every email and every communication. Outstanding. Outstanding. Any final words before we close out today's episode? You know, I just want people to stay safe and I, you know, I look forward to working with more people here in the UK and hopefully at some point getting back to the States and continue doing what I'm doing here over there. And I'll tell you, if you don't make it to the States soon, I will be over there. So we'll at least sit down and, and talk and have a beer or whatever we need to do to, uh, to touch base with each other. That sounds great, man. I look forward to it. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for being on today's show. I do appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Anglerfish Podcast. I appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe and drop me a line saying hello. Hello is always good. You can reach me direct at brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. That's Brett, B-R-E-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H dot com. Other than saying hello, feel free to email questions, comments, concerns, or even show suggestions. I respond to every single email I get. And please, tell your friends about us. Rate and review Anglerfish wherever you can. As Anglerfish continues to navigate the dark waters of our online lives, remember... 
Stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant.